heard that in January, the 1905 Portland's premier jazz club was named by Downbeat Magazine as one of the best jazz venues in the world. In the world! Not since the demise of Jimmy Max have we had anything close to what the 1905 has going for it. The top world-class musicians in an atmosphere equal to the music. With me in the Artichoke Cafe today is Aaron Barnes, one of the people who made all that happen. Was that his aim when he started? How did he manage to survive the pandemic, not only intact, but flourishing? He's a born and bred Portlander, and that makes it even sweeter. It's a great story. Let's meet Aaron Barnes. How did you get the? How did you end up with like the top jazz club and one of the, one of the top jazz jazz clubs in the country? Uh, Is that was that your aim? No, no, I didn't even know that was a goal. Really. No, for me, it's always been about, well, the origin story is that the 1905 was a pizzeria. Uh-huh. It was a neighborhood pizzeria with hip-hop DJs. Huh? And uh, my friend Mark Hutchinson and I were standing around one night figuring out how to get customers, and we thought, let's call Ron Steen. <laughs> so we called Ron, and Ron came in, scoped it out, and said, let's give it a shot. <laughs> so that was November of 2016. We opened in October. Yeah. And ever since then, we've just been adding more and more live music, uh, uh-huh. predominantly jazz. Yeah. And it just became what it is. I think I, I'm a musician myself. Yeah. I have a former career as a music educator, teaching high school band and uh-huh. uh, some amazing mentors, guys like Greg Hall. Um, I feel like I've just been surrounded by a lot of good music and positive inspiration. So that's that's what felt comfortable to present. Mm-hmm. So, but your aim, what, what, what was your aim? Just to have a jazz club? That's a complicated question. Uh, it goes back even okay. a few years before the 1905 uh-huh. when uh, great saxophonist Tim Wilcox and I sure. talked about opening a pizzeria jazz club downtown where the Guilt Club used to be at uh-huh. Bro- Northwest Broadway in Everett. Yeah. And it didn't, didn't quite happen. He went to open his coffee shop, Billmore Coffee. Yeah. And I stayed in the classroom a few more years. But we had built a whole business plan. Uh, Jimmy helped us with it. Uh, Bruce Carey helped us with it. Jim, Jimmy Mack? Yep. Okay. Yep. We had uh, some restaurant heavy hitters. We had, mm. you know, the, the jazz heavy hitter in the, as far as venues go in town. Mm-hmm. And uh, we built this whole business plan. And then we just filed it away. And he did his thing and I did mine. And then mm. later I was telling Mark Hutchinson and Ben Fowler. I had them over for pizza. And I was telling them the, the story. And Mark said, let's do this, but let's just make it a pizzeria. So (laughs) we went down the pizzeria path, had a whole bunch of ideas, landed where we are now in in North Portland, just off Mississippi on Shaver, and did the pizza thing. But making it into a jazz club or an award-winning jazz club was never the goal, just to present really good music. And I don't know if there's a, a nice way of saying this. I feel like we've made strides over time it hasn't always been what it is uh, in terms of the caliber of artists that we've hosted or uh-huh. um, even being able to pick a lane uh, there was a lot of time when we did karaoke and we did uh, we did like a broken hearts speed dating thing on valentine's <laughs> and we would do decidedly non-jazz music you know a lot more folk or rock uh-huh. stuff at times and I think we settled on what I feel like I can most authentically present because mm-hmm. it's where my musical interest lies. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though there's a lot of great music out there, 
it's, it's hard for me to have to want to learn about to the degree that I understand, you know, jazz and jazz adjacent music yeah. to try to go learn that about country uh-huh. is just an exceptionally daunting challenge. <laughs> not that it's not worth it. It's yeah. just that I don't think I have the bandwidth. Uh. Did you see this? Uh, did you see the club as a place for you to play? No, I've never thought that. Huh? I sit in from time to time, but mm-hmm. I, I would rather listen to so many other players. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh, it's a nice, I can use it as a goal. I would like to find myself worthy. There you go. There you go. Not there yet. <laughs> what, 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 what do you think will get you there? Oh, practice. But that takes time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just uh, too distracted by other passions, too. So opening new restaurants. and There's a new restaurant? Two new restaurants. Woo! Yeah, there's nothing like that to keep you busy. Wow. Keep you off your horn. Where are they? Uh, Scholar is our second restaurant. It opened in September of last year, mm-hmm. uh, between 22nd and 23rd on Northeast Broadway. Mm-hmm. And then just last week on Wednesday, February 1st, we opened Hopscotch on 44th and Hawthorne. Wow. And Scholar is a more elevated Italian concept mm-hmm. uh, and Amaro-centric bar program. And then Hopscotch is... A what? Amaro-centric. So Amaro is the Italian word for bitter. Yeah. So uh, using things like Campari ah. and uh, mm-hmm. more gourmet i suppose more niche things than that as well uh-huh. but i'm definitely not a bar guy as much as i'm a pizza guy <laughs> and uh hopscotch is on 44th and hawthorne it's a family-friendly sports bar and a coffee shop what did it used to be most recently it was ancestry uh-huh ancestry brewing and then prior to that it was called chapel hill which was uh-huh. opened by some of the friends of mine that helped me open the 1905 uh-huh i know music in those places no, no. <laughs> Why do you say it like that? Oh, I just I couldn't imagine adding another layer to, <laughs> just, to this right now. <laughs> sense of relief in that answer. Oh, well, it's also just the, the simplicity of an operation that doesn't have music is, mm-hmm. is remarkable. And, and I found out the hard way how complicated it is. I don't say I don't love it. I just say it's complicated. In what way? Oh, it's just a whole other business inside of a business. Yeah. You know, whether yeah. it's booking and scheduling or... Mm-hmm artist management on site or advancing the shows or handling payment with a different bank account and calculating based on, you know, ticket sales in advance and ticket sales at the door, which are two different systems. And then passing that along to the bartender or the manager, it's, there's always something. And then figuring out that a piece of equipment isn't working right at the 11th hour. And what do you do about it? How do you fix it? How yeah. do you make it yeah. work for the night? Ah. Uh, ticketing platforms. There's a lot. But you like it. I love it. <laughs> it's so, it's so, it, I, it is the hardest job I think I've had, but yeah. also the best. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I felt the same way when I started working music news. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that I think feels like a calling to me. Yeah. And at the risk of sounding arrogant, I can't imagine doing something else and feeling like what I do has the value mm-hmm. compared to what I do now. Mm-hmm. So did you start by booking your your musician friends? Of course. Yeah, Ron yeah. Steen, Christopher Brown, yeah. Farnell Newton. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how it all started. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, trying to think who else. Alan Jones, Michael Rayner. Yeah. And, uh, you know, through some of them, though, I, I met other folks in sort of in the, the more indie 
singer-songwriter scene like Jacob mm -hmm. Westfall yeah. ran a Sunday open mic that was a really mm -hmm. nice addition to our program ultimately not the right fit but really nice mm -hmm. and he's made a home for himself at Mississippi Pizza and they're killing it nice uh, he's an incredible musician and yeah. uh, met a lot of great folks through him but yeah I mean it's really Ronstein Chris Brown Farnell were the first three folks that we booked and then we added Alan and Michael shortly thereafter and yeah you see a lot of George Colligan now and see a lot of George Colligan everywhere. Yeah, we love getting Daryl Grant when he, uh -huh. when he has time. Uh -huh. He's incredible. Uh -huh. And we're, <laughs> you know, really blessed, I think, to have some of these other cats in town. Noah Simpson, Matt Sazima. Uh, there's a great vocalist, Liana Simmons. Yeah. Who's, I think, making waves, or, or could be if she would like to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Saida, as much as we can make that uh, work. Yeah. We've had some unfortunate, like, weather weather issues two years in a row had to reschedule some things oh but we'll get her back she's a favorite Said is great she said i had her on the, on the podcast and she just sat sat here and sang <laughs> yeah she's incredible <laughs> really <laughs> um so uh so you don't get a chance to play i play in limited amounts uh, ron steen loves to ask me to sit in or jack yeah. at his sessions yeah but it depends on my mood and how confident I feel, or really, yeah. Just, After all this time, oh, I I play so infrequently. Huh. You pl do you pl do you do you practice? No, no. <laughs> no, I'd like to. <laughs> I go through phases where I, I practice from time to time. Yeah, yeah. But not recently. Yeah. I, I w was uh, amazed that um, how you guys. It may it may have just been my perception, and the reality may not be as rosy as I, as it looks to me but it just seemed like you guys flourished during the pandemic it was good to us in a lot of ways as much as it was terrible for mm -hmm. everybody and i would never wish that on anyone mm -hmm. the uh, uh one of the best things that happened was our landlord called us and said aaron i gotta drop your rent <laughs> he called me um and then the staff called and said, well, we were, I had planned to just close, mm -hmm. at least temporarily. And then the cooks called me and said, Aaron, we can do this. Get us somebody to answer phones, fold boxes, we'll make pizza. And that built up and built up and built up. And then eventually we were allowed to add tables on the patio. Mm -hmm. We were allowed to do cocktails. We never did a to-go cocktail program. Mm -hmm. uh, Would have been fun maybe. But, but we found out that we could function as a restaurant. Mm which was always our goal in the beginning, but there were so many other restaurants, I think, that sort of cluttered the scene. And, yeah, and in being, the neighborhood even. Yeah, so yeah. being one of the restaurants that was open, we were available for takeout and limited dine-in, mm -hmm. and we were very successful during that time. Of course, as restaurants started to reopen and we started adding music back, mm -hmm. things got more complicated again, and, mm -hmm. and I would say harder, but not necessarily worse. But right. you did live streaming. We did that too, and that's uh, left door streaming is a yeah. huge part of that. Yeah, uh, run by Jordan Henline, and at the He's time been on Moses, the podcast. yeah, Moses yeah. was involved back then too, mm -hmm. and that was a connection made by Greg Goble. Ah, he introduced who was us. just on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. See, oh, small world. <laughs> <laughs> it is a small town. Yeah, there's no question about that. But that was that was really important for a while, and I had actually thought mm -hmm. about emulating Smalls even prior to COVID. Really. But trying to figure out how to do that in a way that doesn't cannibalize from the live shows. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's no real 
it's not apples to apples. I mean, being present mm -hmm. in a room is so different than watching it on a computer or television totally. screen or, yeah. or a phone. Mm -hmm. um, acoustically different too, but but it was still nice to be able to present it and, and also record it, like be able to have it mm -hmm. as a historical document mm -hmm. in a way. And does still exist? Some of them. Yeah. I mean, some artists have asked us to delete things, which yeah. is totally acceptable. It's yeah. their material. Yeah. And yeah. We didn't make any deals where we own the masters or anything. Right. Right. Huh. But it's it was it was really cool to be able to still be a part of the live music scene mm -hmm. at the same time as we weren't able to present with in person audiences. Mm -hmm. And then about a year, maybe two years ago, mm -hmm. we we did start having limited live audiences, and uh, it's just it's kind of grown back from there. That I must have been that's such an amazing feeling. Your first your first live live show back. I yeah, I remember the day. I mean, really? it was it was amazing. I remember. We had a couple servers that hadn't been there for a live show mm. before, and they worked their tails off, and yeah. it was a lot of smiles at the end of the night. Do you remember who played? Noah Simpson. Ah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. It was. It was incredible. It was a. It was a big release of, I think, pressure and frustration that we had all been yeah. keeping inside, wondering what was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Right, yeah. It's like I had I had to do all, all 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 my stuff at home. All my all my work was at home. What are you gonna do? Yeah, Why do you, you know, COVID wasn't all bad. I think it it sort of taught us about things we value. Sometimes, I wouldn't again. I wouldn't wish it on anyone again. Mm -hmm. But I think there are lessons that we've been able to pick up from it that have helped. Mm. To you know, I'm not saying everything's gone better, <laughs> but there are definitely some brighter elements that we've been exposed to. Like what? Oh, I think learning how to be close to people again, mm -hmm. uh, at least those that we live with. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of my best times were in the morning I would wake up, mm -hmm. I'd walk to work from my apartment with my kid and we'd just talk mm -hmm. and then we'd walk home and then I'd get in my car, run my errands, drop it off and then I'd come home and we'd play games, we'd mm -hmm. cook. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's something that we didn't always have time for with mm -hmm especially my job, the way I prioritized. Yeah. Because I was running around and I was at work at night because there were shows. Mm -hmm. And I was the, the sort of main relationship for a lot of the artists. Hmm. So my mm -hmm. presence there seemed to make a difference on the experience for artists and staff. It made mm -hmm. The staff didn't have to stress about how do we, how do we work with this person? <laughs> and I think the artists felt like, oh, okay, the guy who, who runs the place. Mm-hmm actually cares that's great yeah uh, those are you can't you can't learn those things i don't think except through some adversity seems that way yeah unfortunately i right. wish there were other ways <laughs> i think there's always a flip side yeah to almost every situation i guess i'm not so sure about that but i'll, I'll take your word for it <laughs> other thing that that there was always um fascinating was that people pay a lot of money to come to your place sometimes yeah <laughs> recently huh recently yeah yeah I, I think that's amazing it's what does that say what does that say about about the jazz audience in Portland it says a lot of things yeah and I think one of the challenges that we face is I've always thought of you know jazz and improvised music in general especially you know jazz adjacent music mm -hmm. is really the music of the people 
it didn't cost money. It was entertainment that people created for themselves. Yeah. And now we charge for it. And now we charge more than ever. And we have to because if we don't, these artists can't pay their bills. Sure. The downside is the people that need the access, students in particular, mm -hmm. don't necessarily have the capital to, to buy a ticket. I mean, we had definitely some, some folks that didn't love the $90 ticket price for John Cowherd with John Patitucci and Brian Blade and Chris mm -hmm. Potter and Steve Cardenas. Mm -hmm. I didn't love it either. But fortunately, we had a nonprofit uh, that helped to subsidize some of the ticket price. They would mm -hmm. have been even more expensive. Wow. But the reason I wanted to bring the band in was because I think it's, it's a very unique experience to be able to see a band of that caliber mm -hmm. and sit so close that you can see the brow on, or the sweat on someone's brow. Yep. And yep. yes, you can go see them at Vanguard for 40 bucks. Yeah. But you're never going to have the experience you had at the 1905 in that front row. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. but I do struggle because I do think access a lot of times comes down to money. And if we don't have the money to pay the artists, we're not going to get the artists. So that experience won't exist. And I think when it comes to bringing in other great artists, unfortunately they want to kind of see a CV of the club. Well, who else has played there? Right. So, Every time we get one of those big names, a Nick Payton, an mm -hmm. Ari Honig, a mm -hmm. Taylor Eichste, yeah, um, Jeremy Pelt, somebody like that, mm -hmm. Kenny Garrett, mm -hmm. I think it lends credibility to the venue. Sure. And then to have most recently, you know, John Cowherd and, and cats like that, another layer of credibility. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, what does it say about the Portland jazz audience? I think I think they have great taste. Yeah. Uh, clearly. They've made a priority decision. I wouldn't say that they're all wealthy as much as I think they, they may have made a calculated purchase knowing that this was going to be one of the more expensive live music shows that they've seen. Yeah. And they probably won't, if I were to have booked another one the following weekend, they probably wouldn't have come to that one too. Right. So that's just the, the nature of the beast. It's the markets also changed. I mean, in, in what way? costs more to hire live artists well right and okay they 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 have their own standards for what they think they need to get paid to yeah. to live yeah and it's all business right i can disagree and say well i can only offer this and they may play they may not yeah so it's it's definitely a conversation i think the uh the challenge we face is um how do we how do we offer opportunities to everyone yeah and then the other part is, and this might be an interesting piece of information for a lot of folks. I get emails from time to time from folks that are like, well, if I pay this much for a ticket, why do I still have to buy food and beverage? Right. And the answer is because it's two separate bank accounts, among other things. And when you buy a ticket, you're paying for the production. You're paying for the artist. You're paying mm -hmm. for the sound person. You're mm -hmm. paying for uh, maybe some marketing. Uh, when you buy food and beverage, that's what, that's what pays the staff. That's what keeps the you know, allows us to pay the rent, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, so they're, they're completely independent and mm -hmm. it is the cost of entertainment. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I went to the movies and maybe the tickets weren't as expensive, but the food was yes. for something that, you know, <laughs> the margins were, you know, a hundred times better than what our margins are. Yeah. Yeah. Popcorn yeah. doesn't cost $12. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody told me the other day that, um, you've got, uh, national and international acts calling you wanting to play the 1905 yes that true yeah wow 
Well, good for you. Thanks. <laughs> it's fun. I yeah. can't keep up with it all, though. <laughs> really? No. Sure you can. Well, obviously you are. I keep up with some of them. Uh, <laughs> I get a lot of emails and texts and phone calls yeah. and Facebook yeah. messages and Instagram yeah. messages. Yeah. Well, that, you know, I, I never, I'll never forget the first time when, when, uh, when I started Oregon Music News, there was a great, great writer, jazz writer named uh, John Barry. Uh, here in town, and he had written for the Oregonian, and he had written for this and written for that. And he was a great writer and a wonderful guy, and a big curmudgeon. And he wrote this piece on the band Oregon, right? And I just got it, and I looked at it, and I said, "This is why I started Oregon Music News. This is it right here." Have you had a have you have you had moments like that? I think so. Yeah. I think every every year or two yeah. I have that moment, and mm -hmm. then I get a year or so later, and I look back and I'm like, I didn't have it then, but now I do. <laughs> you know, I, I had the same sort of feeling when I was a band director, and so really? I, would, I would get hired, and you know, I remember my first job was at Southridge High School, and I remember where's that uh, out in Beaverton, okay, near Washington Square, yeah, and course i felt like a total outsider when i started yeah and then a couple months later i was like okay now i'm their band director a couple months later i was like no no now i'm and it just kind of <laughs> went on from there but i think that's sort of the evolution of of anything that's that's growing yeah is as it yeah. grows you start to i mean presumably you you grow with it right and you right. you start to see these i don't know benchmarks but right. you might not have seen them as you were passing them but you look back and you realize yes. that was one yep like yep. so many rites of passage and, and life yep. lessons. Yep, yep. And then you get to uh, you get to mentor and you get to teach and you get to bring kids along. It's it's, it's amazing. I mean, I have got this uh, daughter, a ten year old daughter of one of my photographers. Just decided she wanted to be a photographer, so he he takes her and she loves metal, so he takes her to all these metal concerts and she she shoots these wonderful photo galleries. So it's like, my God, what a, what a nice thing. So listen, was was the saxophone your first instrument? No, I started on piano. Yeah, I think I was six or seven. Uh -huh. My grandfather was a concert pianist and composer in uh -huh. Ohio, and we moved out here. And I honestly don't remember if my parents told me I was going to take piano lessons or if I asked. <laughs> but I had a great teacher in Northeast Portland. Her name was Mary Smith. Uh -huh. Did that for two or three years, and uh -huh. then I switched to guitar and studied well, with. What, what were you playing on the piano? Oh. Bastion, just yeah. you know, exercises and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. And then I uh, switched to guitar, and yeah. I studied with Newell Briggs uh -huh. uh, at the Old Artichoke on Hawthorne. Yeah. Back when Steve was the owner. Yeah. And uh, then I studied with Steve Cooper. I don't uh -huh. know if you know Steve. Mm -mm. Uh, and then I switched to saxophone. So what were you playing on guitar? What kind of stuff were you playing? Oh, Beatles songs and yeah. Of course. Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> songs that had lyrics. He'd make me sing and play a company myself. And uh -huh. I was terrible at it. Really? But it was good for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always good to, to find out what you're terrible at. It's yeah. important because I certainly found out what I was terrible at. You know? Oh, I still do some of those things. Oh, me too. That just doesn't <laughs> stop you. <laughs> but yeah, I, I switched to saxophone. I think I took lessons starting in my freshman year. Uh -huh. Started with Clark Bondi and then Earl Miner and then uh -huh. Cliff Waits and uh -huh. was at Grant for a couple of years and then transferred right. to Sunset, which is uh -huh. when I met Greg Hall, uh -huh. who I would tell you is probably my my biggest jazz hero. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
I'd huh. do just about anything for that guy. Huh. And who, who did, was there somebody you tried to emulate other than him? I mean, somebody famous? Oh, well, Greg wasn't somebody I emulated as a player as much as I just admired his, his leadership and gotcha. he was an inspiration. Gotcha. I was a huge Paul Desmond fan. Ah, really? Yeah, huge. That says everything. So I... No, I it's would, wonderful. I, I spent all of my time just copying his solos. And then I finally went to college. That says so much about you. <laughs> does it, what does yeah. it say? It says you... There's... A, because his of, of, of the beauty of Paul Desmond of Paul Desmond's music yeah he's got skills yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I remember Kim Richmond uh-huh. great saxophonist did a master class at U of O uh, when I was a freshman and he said I went to college trying to copy Paul Desmond too <laughs> but the truth is you got to learn how to you, know, you got to listen to Sonny, both of them, Sonny Stid, Sonny yeah. Rollins. you got to listen right. to Dex. you got to listen to yeah. Cannonball. Yeah. So he said, keep doing it, but make sure you do this other stuff too. Yeah. And that was one of those big eye-opening moments for me. And I, uh-huh. I took it to heart and tried to open up my, my ears and palate. And it was really good for me. Well, good. So um, do you still... Do you, do you still pick up any... Do you still pick up the, the saxophone and play any Paul Desmond? Oh, sometimes I can, yeah. What's your favorite Paul Desmond? I love all the stuff with Jim Hall. Of course. But, uh, you know, it's that uh, Three to Get Ready was the first first cut that really caught my, well, Take Five was the first cut that really caught my ear, but the one I really loved and the first Mm -hmm. solo I transcribed was the Three to Get Ready solo. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Nice. Did you ever get to see him? No, he died a year before I was born. Oh. Well, you must be pretty young. <laughs> no, I, I, saw I must be play. pretty old. <laughs> I saw I saw Brubeck play. Did you? Yeah. yeah I saw so, Jim Hall. Oh, well, that would have been cool. Yeah, yeah I saw Brubeck great. at the Mount Hood Jazz Festival. Ah, nice. Nice, nice, yeah. <laughs> uh, I saw Jim Hall in a little tiny little club in D.C. one time. I had hmm. no idea who he was because I was ignorant. However, I was less ignorant once I saw him. You, you appreciated it regardless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's incredible too. Um, so, uh, um, h- how do you feel about um, being called the top jazz club in town? I mean, this, you're, you're you're the Jimmy Mac. You're you're Jimmy Mac. Uh, I mean, the the ego part of me is thrilled, of course. Well, but yeah. I, I think there's there's a lot of work to do. I think we need more venues. Yes, and. I think the important thing to remember is that we have a lot of musicians in this town. Yeah. And we only have one full-time stage, but I think it's important to recognize and appreciate the work that Jack London does, yep. the work that Artichoke does, yep. um, the work that Wilfs does, uh, the Underground. I mean, these are all venues in the Portland area that, that do play host mm-hmm. to local and national and, and international acts. And so it feels cool to be the only full-time one, I suppose. But yeah. If I could have two and manage it and maintain my sanity, <laughs> I would do that too. I, th- I think about how it would change the the structure of bands because there are so many cats that that play so much at yeah. the 1905, for example. Right. But if we had two venues that were both full time, mm-hmm. some of those guys couldn't play together all the time. They'd, they'd be one. This guy that's a side man in this guy's band might be leading a band here. Yeah. I think it would open up doors and opportunities within the bands themselves. Uh-huh. I also think that. There are geographical situations in this city where uh-huh. 
folks just don't want to cross the river. It's, it's a barrier. Isn't for them. that weird? It is for me. It is for everybody. But I've lived on all sides of this river. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been here since 97, but I never, I still don't understand that. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not very far past the river to get to the 1905. It's not, very, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a really huge river, to tell you the honest to God truth. Um, but it's weird. It's strange. But I, I do think there are. The culture. I, I do. I do like being recognized for the hard work we put in. Mm-hmm. I do think it would be great to have more venues that receive the same accolades from Downbeat, for example. I yeah. think there are a lot of really good things happening underneath the surface. For whatever reason, we got the attention. Yeah. I'm not mad about it, but I want to use. I want to use our scene to do more than just you know perpetuate the success of the 1905. It sounds like there's another Aaron Jazz Club coming up sometime. <laughs> uh, I'm dreaming about it on the west side. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, there's not much on the west side. I mean, you know, even even Joe Bar, which was, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a nice little room, but, geez, it wasn't a jazz club, you know? Right. Uh, I DJed there for a couple of years. Um, but, uh, yeah, there are, there, are, there, are, there are no venues. Well, I also think, you know, if we have a few more real venues and yeah. by real venues i mean like these are places that are dedicated to the music it's it's not a an entertainment that's added to a dining room uh-huh. it is the yes. reason people come yes presumably the food and beverage are good too yeah but i think that's what we need to do more of if we really want to build a scene mm-hmm. I, I think you'll find that people will move here if they know there are opportunities to play with other great players mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And then we also need to find the right kinds of venues to support up-and-coming artists, whether they're, sure. you know, new to town and, and haven't developed a name, or if they are college musicians who need an outlet in an authentic setting. It's, mm-hmm. In fact, to go back to my teaching days, one of the things I hated more than anything was taking high school bands to a college gymnasium mm. to play jazz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's It's really... <laughs> almost detrimental it's not all bad of course right yeah. you're playing music yeah. in front of an audience and you get feedback from you know educators and musicians yeah but i think context is a big part of life and education so i think it's important that we we take these these students and put them in an authentic setting whatever that is uh-huh. it varies from place to place the 1905 is delightfully not a very normal looking jazz club right it doesn't have velvet curtains all over. It's yes. not, it, it's not, it's just, it was a restaurant that I converted, <laughs> that we converted. <laughs> but, but the idea of having a place where that stage is the same stage that other musicians have played on, you know, s- same style, oh, yeah. night after night after night. Yeah. I mean, you would come for a show, like I would go to Jimmy Max. Yes. You know, whether I was in, you know, college or, right. you know, teacher or whatever, and I'd go to Jimmy Max and I would just sit there and I'm, you know, drool watching Mel Brown play. Yep. And yep. Yep. and then eventually I was teaching the kids and I said, hey, let's take a small group and see if we can open for Mel or Balmer. Uh-huh. And that's what we did. And yeah. so instead of focusing on gymnasium big band performances, uh-huh. I took small groups and I said, let's go play where the jazz musicians play. Uh-huh. And I like to think I did some good. I don't know if it really worked, <laughs> but I think it's yeah. it's another approach to to really kind of teaching people about what what this style of music is and and, yeah. and can be. Yeah. Were you did, were you part of the Mel Brown Jazz Camp? I went a couple times. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. What was that like? Oh, it was great. You hanging yeah. out in the dorms with a bunch of other geeks. Yeah. You know, like, 
listening to <laughs> Phil Woods and Charlie Parker, and, and I had a blast. That's how I met some really good friends. I'll bet. I'll bet. Uh, yeah, we sent a reporter there one time, but he was and he was in his forties <laughs> to be a student, and that was pretty funny. Pretty funny. He had a great time too. But uh, well, listen, I don't want to keep you from from being a great entrepreneur and uh, all the stuff that you've got to do. And I really appreciate you coming by. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, best of luck. And uh, we're looking for the next club. It's in. It's in you. Uh, well. <laughs> Maybe I got to get the the current thing settled. <laughs> I don't think my accountant or any of my colleagues will appreciate it if I take on more without uh, without getting the rest of this stuff situated. <laughs> uh, you seem to be the guy to be able to do that. Uh, faking it right now. We're all faking <laughs> I'll it. I'll figure it out one of these. We're days. all faking it, Aaron. Kidding me? <laughs> that's what we do. Improvising. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a better way to put it. We are a one in doubt vamp. That's right. <laughs> That's what George Clinton used to say. Um, well, listen, thank you very much for coming in. I really, uh, it's, it's been great meeting you, and, and uh, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And like we always like to say at the end of these things, That's entertainment.